Over the past couple of weeks, um, we're in this kind of little in-between stage. Uh, we've got Tim coming next week, and then we're going to get into our, our, um, our Christmas series, heading into Christmas. We've just been looking at some of our church values, just a few of them, we've been backing over them, just to remind ourselves of who it is uh, that we say we are. We actually have... Uh, if you didn't know, seven church values, seven things that underpin uh, the way we do uh, life here at Freeway. And that's that we live biblically faithful lives is one of them, that we're a community that's formed and founded in Christ. And we looked at that last week, uh, that we, we, we value selfless service. You know, we, we serve because we were first served. And we looked at that the week before. Uh, we have a value of being radically generous, not just generous. We have a value of being fervently prayerful. Uh, we, ha- we are motivated for multiplication. And in our final value is that uh, we renewed worship priorities, which is what we're going to have a look at this week. Worship even, um, even passionate worship is not something that is kind of just unique to the church. Uh, worship isn't merely just coming into church and singing some songs. It's not going to a temple and praying to a statue. Worship, if the truth be known, is an activity that flows out of uh, what motivates and directs us. Worship is actually how we live our lives every moment of every day. Every thought that we have, every deed that we do, every feeling, every desire and activity are all kind of revealing what we worship, are all the outpourings of, of lived out worship in our lives. And every culture and every subculture and every group uh, an expression of humanity has, uh, has its idols, has its gods, has the things that it seeks to worship. Even atheists are not exempt from uh, worship. Their lives, too, will be organized at some point around serving some kind of principle, serving some kind of goal or experience. Whether our worldview allows us to admit it or not, we are all worshippers. And while the object and, and the method of worship may vary, the actual need and the act of worship does not. It's how we were created. We are, we are created uh, unsatisfied until we can find something to, to place our affections on or, or place our affections towards. The evidence for this, if you don't believe me, is all around us. We pack football stadiums, uh, theatres, movie theatres, Chadston. Uh, we go to these places wherever it is to watch our favourite football side or to see our favourite music artists or to buy our favourite toys or experience our favourite things. We prioritise our money to go there. We prioritise our time to be transported by an experience, an encounter, some kind of attainment, and then we just kind of go crazy about it. We go crazy about it for a couple of hours, just pouring ourselves out, singing, taking selfies, doing whatever, worship, really. I don't know if you've noticed uh, all the shrines lately to demons that have been popping up. Have you seen all those shrines to demons? We've got four of them down our street. You kidding me? Ever since Melbourne won the grand final, shrines <laughs> to demons everywhere. Unbelievable. Doing my head in. Didn't realize there were so many Melbourne supporters out there. Closet worshippers that they are. 
Some of us don't go for all that noise. Our affections are, and our priorities are, are, are more refined and more cultural, if you like. Museums, cafes, theatres, canvases, coffee. And we, we weep and we are stirred with story and beauty, music, art. What we see and taste moves our hearts and we worship. Then there's places like Bunnings bars and brothels and we fill them unrelentingly with, with, with regularity as the soul pursues something to gratify it something to elevate it something to quench its thirst for worship and meaning to pour itself into and we've seen the emotion and the euphoria in Victoria as we return to our places of worship people actually crying outside of hairdressing salons to be human is to be a worshipper. You just you can't turn it off. And you worship what you live for. Whatever is most worthy of your attention and devotion, it's what drives you at your core, and it flows uh, from the essence of who you are and drives us to the places of worship where we give expression to the longings of our hearts. The Herald Best is an emirate's this is an Emirates Dean Professor of Music at Wheaton College Conservatorium of Music. Imagine putting that in a business card. He says, Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am and all that I do and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. From the Bible, we get the reason why. We are passionate worshippers. Why this is so? We read in Genesis there that God created us that way, that he created us as worshipping beings, and that that worship found its ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction as we lived out our lives in relationship with God. The longing and the hunger of the soul found its satisfaction in being in relationship with God. And then that shaped uh, everything we did everything we put our hand to and sought to achieve and how, how we expressed our lives, how we gave worship. However, it's not so much that we were created, merely created to worship because that would imply that God kind of was incomplete and actually required our worship, which he does not. The God we encounter in Scripture is revealed as Father, Spirit and Son, is in that um, existence perfectly satisfied with his own eternal environment of worship in which the trinity continuously and constantly has this outpouring between the three persons of the godhead in this unceasing communication of worship love and friendship and joy a being of worship and we are created as worshipping beings because we are created in God's image, in his likeness as unceasing worshippers. And our worship of God is the fundamental way in which we as humans receive love and satisfaction and joy and contentment because God is the ultimate quencher and source of these things. So we are not created to worship, we are created worshipping and given the perfect nature of God, God in his perfect goodness, God in his perfect holiness, his justice, his steadfast love, all of this in unlimited capacity, it would be entirely inappropriate to worship anything other than God. 
But this is the great scandal of our hearts. Our hearts have been diverted from worship of God to worship of his creation. Worship of self being the main kind of way that we rob, that we steal uh, glory from God, that we redirect our worship. We read about that in the first chapter of Romans. But Thaddeus Williams, which is an extraordinarily cool name, in a recent article that he wrote for the Gospel Coalition, spends a bit of time discussing how self-worship has become the highest, highest priority, the highest virtue of our culture with percentages that would make our vaccine-worshipping politicians just weep. We believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Your self-enjoyment is the highest virtue and principle in life, self-expression. That to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things that you desire most. And that to find yourself, you must look within not look without, not look toward God, not seek God, but self. Our problem is not that we don't worship or that we aren't passionate about our worship. Our problem is that we worship wrongly. What the Bible would call in broad categories idolatry. And Tim Keller gives a definition of idolatry that I kind of like. It's easy to understand. Idolatry is finding anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And if you want a clue to what that is, what do you daydream about? What are your nightmares? What is it that if you lost it, you would just be crushed and destroyed? Perhaps that's what we're worshiping. It's the foundation of another broad category, idolatry, that we find in the Bible called sin. Idolatry and the disordered worship priorities are one of the most frequently talked about and condemned problems in Scripture because it's how sin gets expressed. When we lost communion with God through sin, we didn't stop worshipping. We just redirected where our worship went. And now we worship anything and everything apart from God. The ensuing problem is that when we deify and create things like marriage, or we, you know, sorry, when we deify created things like marriage and children, appearance and wealth, you know, success, career, religious performance, political parties, you know, causes that we might want to get behind, relationships, passions, hobbies, sexuality, pleasure, status, and power, they don't actually lead us to human flourishing. They actually cause division and disappointment because they crumble under the weight of being our gods, our places of receiving meaning and satisfaction because they were never created to be worshipped or to be gods. They were only ever created to be places to point us to something worth worshipping, gifts that tell us of the goodness of the one behind it all. There is no created thing that exists as an end in itself, as a place to terminate your passion. All of creation has one purpose, to speak of the glory of God and to take us there in worship of God. That's what Psalm 19 describes, tells us. If you live for a career and you don't do it well, it's going to dog your whole life. 
you're going to feel like a failure. If you live for your children, you worship your children, and they don't turn out as you dreamed they would, then that will torment you because you're going to feel ashamed. If you live for relationships and reciprocated love, you could end up bitter when it breaks down, when it, when it betrays you. If you live for power, you'll be insecure and fearful when you are met with greater power. But more concerning is that these things have kept your heart from God, the one place where worship actually leads to life, to deep satisfaction. We need more than anything for our worship and our passion to be renewed in its priorities. And something greater than sport and family, career, sexuality, morality and behavior, religious practice, conservation, whatever it is. We need to have our worship renewed in something that will not enslave us, will not shame us, will not exploit us or oppress us. And only God qualifies because only God, only a relationship with God can truly fill you and only God in that relationship as, as we don't meet our standards, as we don't meet what we think we should be in that only God will forgive us in that space, will accept us again and again in that space, will pick us up again and again in that space. Only God is the only being who needs actually nothing from us and has everything to give to us. Renewed worship takes place when the truth of who God is, an, a, a, an unneedy God, <laughs> transforms our hearts towards him and pours out of us in passion for that God because an encounter with him is to encounter joy, to encounter love, to encounter acceptance, all these things. In John 4 that Krista read to us today, we have this exchange between Jesus and a Samaritan woman in which Jesus offers the possibility of this kind of renewed worship priorities where, where, that transform hearts that are prone to worship disorders to hearts that actually uh, worship God uh, in spirit and truth, which leads to deep satisfaction, new life. In John 4, 7 to 26, Jesus finds himself speaking to this Samaritan woman at a well. And it is actually one of the most rigorous theological conversations that Jesus holds with the people that he encounters. And the conversation eventually rolls around to true worship. But it begins where worship disorders take us in life, where they land us. The environment that this conversation is set in is full of disordered worship priorities. The worship of race and heritage, which leads to division between Jews and Samaritans so they won't even drink out of the same cups. The worship of gender, which elevates one over the other to the point that they shouldn't be speaking to each other in public. The worship of relationships to gain meaning, which has seen this woman bounce from one husband to the next. The worship of piety and purity and religious practice, which has seen this woman become a social discard. Her lifestyle is why she comes to the well in the most oppressive part of the day, in the heat of the day. There's no one else out there. She wants to be alone. Disordered worship priorities that have led to human division and oppression and shame, not unity or service or flourishing. In the course of the conversation, Jesus has been exposing this woman, where her actual idols lie. 
what it is that she worships, the wells that she drinks from and pours herself into. And in amongst that, we find that her pursuit of broken relationship after lost relationship, five husbands who have for various reasons rejected her. She's poured herself out on the altar, on after altar in the pursuit of intimacy and relationship, only to find that if she doesn't perform, if she doesn't meet some standard, then she's a discard, only to form that rather find that rather than finding a soulmate, she finds that she's just the possession of someone. And now this rather intelligent and astute woman, like she holds down one of the more theological conversations of Jesus. This woman's no fool, but she lives in shame. It's not who she really is, so to speak. That's what false gods do. They enslave and they shame and they divide and they dehumanize. But Jesus hasn't come to put his finger into her wound. He has come to heal it. While it isn't too much fun having your idols and your sin exposed, as is what's happening in this conversation with Jesus and this woman, you can't heal what you deny, and you can't have forgiven what you won't confess. And you can't have what motivates your worship reprioritized if it's not replaced with something more desirable. You're just going to go back to the same thing unless you can find something more desirable. Worship, according to Jesus, is dredged up from and completely integrated into a life uh, that where the heart, where what the heart pursues. It is about adultery. It is about racial conflict. It's about financial power. It's about self-image. It's about the idols in our lives. And it's about a hunger and a passion to find something to bear the burden of our fiercest longings and to pour our lives into it. And Jesus understands that. And he rips apart her lowly, dispassionate understanding of worship and seeks to lift it to a new outrageous claim that might be too good to be true. Worship is not merely about prescriptions and duties and formulas, nor is it about geography and which temple that you're going to worship in. It's not about sacred spaces and places and times and who's here and who's not here. It's not about being good enough or moral enough. True worship is not, is not shaped by us. True worship is shaped by God. And God says that true worship is done in spirit and truth. What does Jesus mean by spirit and truth? God is spirit, says Jesus, and only those who are transformed and informed by his spirit and the truth that it reveals about God can worship him appropriately in relational ways that satisfy the soul and bring glory to God. Glory to God, joy to us. Don't panic if you don't grasp it straight away. It kind of blew apart the mind of Israel's best theologian. In another conversation that Jesus had in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, with one of Israel's leading professors of divinity, a dude called Nicodemus, not quite as bright as this lass, Jesus says, you can't enter into the kingdom of God, a place where God is worshipped in truth, unless you are born again. Participation, a life of worship of God requires in you a total rebuild. How is that possible? Nicodemus challenges Jesus. 
Jesus replies, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's pretty simple stuff. Nicodemus, let me draw you a picture. That which is born of flesh is born of flesh. That which is born of the spirit, capital S, is born of the spirit, little s. You see, ducks give birth to ducks and cows give birth to cows. Sinful, idol-worshipping people give birth to sinful, idol-worshipping people. That's just who we are. But the Holy Spirit, something external to us, comes with truth about who Christ is and in that washes us clean and brings alive idolatrous hearts of people to renewed worship priorities, renewing them in all aspects, giving them a, a renewed worship priority about God and who he is. When Jesus says you must worship in spirit and truth, he is saying you, in a way, you must be born again. You must be born of the spirit. You must have had your idolatrous heart that pursues worship of stuff washed clean and enlivened to the reality and the truth of God through the work of the Holy Spirit so that God in that has become more desirable than his stuff. It's all lovely as the conversation goes on. The woman says, you kind of sound like a smart guy. But hey, when the Messiah comes, he will speak ultimate truth to which Jesus says to her, I am he. I am the truth of God. And you need the gift of living water that I am offering. You need to replace all the ways that you have been worshipping and redefine them with an encounter with me, with an encounter with me that's going to well up in you like springs of living water. This Messiah, the kind of Messiah that I am, Jesus says, hasn't come to reform worship, the worship systems of a nation, you know, to come in and reform the temple. Hasn't come to, to, to do that. This Messiah has come to reform the worship systems of people's hearts, of people themselves. And that is why Jesus waited and sat on a well to talk to a woman about worship because he knew that he had a better offer for her living water that will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life a kind of water that quenches your thirst and rather than leaves you dry and parched looking for more but it isn't found in anything within us it is found in encountering jesus <clears throat> the conversation is cut short by the return of the disciples who can't find the courage to ask questions around their own disordered worship priorities. But this woman leaves the well different. This woman leaves with a new song, a new cause, a new reason to live. And it goes like this, Come and meet the man who told me everything about my life. So this Jesus has seen this woman to the very bottom, everything about her, nothing hidden. And yet he still moves towards her as Messiah, as Savior, as God's grace. That's what he said. Could this be how God chooses to move towards sinners with grace? Could a Messiah be this scandalous? Her whole life is now a picture, is pictured briefly as this pouring out of making much of Jesus. Come and see the man. Come and see Jesus. Is that not worship? She has, by definition, had her worship reprioritized by an encounter with Jesus. 
Whatever you base your life on, you have to live up to that. You have to impress it. Fulfill its requirements. Jesus, on the other hand, is the one Lord, the one object, if you like, you can live for who actually lives for you. But more than that, as we know, has given himself for us, would die for us, who breathed his laugh for us, who if we fail will forgive us, who if, who if we fall will pick us up, who if we worship will never leave us disappointed or dissatisfied. And this morning as we've come together, for the first time for a long time, we're just going to stop now, take some time to express our worship as we take communion. It's a space in which our hearts are fueled with the truth of God's love for sinners, for worship thieves, for glory thieves. It's a space where we stop and remember that Jesus gave himself for us, that we might be reconciled with God. And as we do this morning, it's just a, a space in which we've said previously that it evokes memories. It evokes all that God has done for us and it provokes hope, all that God is going to do for us. What it's doing is reminding us of something far more desirable in our lives than anything that we might construct with our own hands. It's a space where our renewed worship priorities get expressed in gratitude as the truth of God's grace floods our hearts. So just take a little moment to rip the lid off that thing and grab your little wafer, eat that in your own time. And then just before our final song, we'll drink together as a symbol of our unity in Christ, of our shared worship of Jesus. Our hearts are filled with the grace of God in Christ and we long for the day where we will see that face to face. Let's drink. I'm going to finish our service here this morning with this song, Heart of Worship. So there'll probably be a little bit of time, but just as we begin to sing it, you can stand, you can kneel, you can pray, just respond however you feel.